the tradition in the news business when people complain about your product is to say, like, fuck you, you're being lied to by bad people, rather, rather than to say, oh, like, let's try to fix what you don't like. And there's a ton of dissatisfaction in it. And yet it is very, very hard for these big institutions to turn, to change what they do, you know, to retool the news factory at a moment when it's crowded to be cranking all the time. It's a tough business to change. Welcome to season four of Perpetual, where you'll get the hottest takes and insights on what's happening in the constantly shifting world of media and marketing. I'm Adam Ryan. Let's go. All right, welcome to another episode of Perpetual. I appreciate the guest today more than most people realize. Ben Smith, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. And as, as we were saying before, I, I'm a huge admirer of what you guys have built. I appreciate that. I was talking to my co-founder and I was trying to, to come up with a list of brands that needed a little bit of a, a resurface, a, a rebrand, but doing it through product, not like through a creative agency, but like, how can we change this brand through product? And what you did at BuzzFeed is at the very top of that list. And now with Semaphore, I can't wait to, to dive in and hear a little bit about what you're thinking about and how you're thinking about media going forward. Yeah, certainly those are two very different things. And it is, it is very fun to start with a, with a blank slate. I mean, it was incredibly fun to come to BuzzFeed and, you know, do quality news inside a business that was known for fun, silly things. But obviously also that was this very complicated question of what we were. And it's nice to be able to start from scratch with something really pure. You know, there was this big trend, everyone, you know, you going to the Times, uh, your Aussie story. I mean, you just made massive splash. I think you're one of the few people when you press publish, you can like change culture, uh, which is like the power of media is this narrative control. And and you take that responsibility, I know, super seriously. But it's also a pretty large responsibility to say we're going to create a new media organization. So I'd love to hear a little bit about like what really inspired this new model of like what did you think was what did you think that was kind of broken besides the brand that you wanted to to fix with Semaphore? Yeah, I mean, I think you know I did at the time to have this real front row seat to the media business and kind of got to peer inside everybody else's glass houses for a couple of years. And my partner Justin had been CEO of Bloomberg Media for gosh almost ten years. And I think like we both really had like front row seats to, you know, both what was working in the in the news business really. I mean, I, you know, I think the news business, the journalism business, is 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 not identical to the media business and and is its own somewhat different, smaller world. And then also what wasn't. And I think the thing that you just sort of see and hear over and over is that, you know, readers, viewers, consumers, as as journalism businesses hate to call them you know, I really hate what a lot, a lot of what everybody's doing and complain constantly, both that they feel they're totally overwhelmed by all the incoming information from everywhere. And then they also don't know what to trust. And I think when the tradition in the news business, when people complain about your product is to say, like, fuck you, you're being lied to by bad people, rather, rather than to say, oh, like, let's try to fix what, what you don't like. And what, what I think what's that left is, you know, if you look at either public research, publicly available kind of research, or just talk to anyone. There's a ton of dissatisfaction in it. And yet it is very, very hard for these big institutions to turn, to change what they do, you know, to retool the news factory at a moment when it's crowded to be cranking all the time. It's a tough business to change. You know, and so it's just a, a good opportunity to, to sort of start fresh and listen really, really directly to, well, what do people say they want that's different and, and address that. And it's a moment when a lot has changed, including just the level of 
disgust and dissatisfaction and distrust with the way social media has changed and distorted journalism. And then also with the relationship with, and this isn't particularly news or journalism centric, but if you look across starting with entertainment industry decades and decades ago, this shift from a relationship with a studio to a relationship with a star, you see it in sports, you see it in politics. And, and I think news is sort of in some sense, the last of the media businesses to get to that point. Cause it's the worst business. Yeah. But I mean, it's obviously the core of what you guys are doing, but to say like, Hey, we're going to be really transparent about, you know, ultimately there's a human being making, you know, who's out trying to gather facts and, and tell you what they found and who also has a point of view on it, but has hopefully the humility to realize their analysis could be wrong, even if the reporting is correct. And so that's, that's sort of where we're going. And I realize it's in some ways, I think a, a tack in the opposite direction of, of one of the sort of slightly pointless things the internet brought to journalism, which is this idea that like all the journalists will be replaced with algorithms. I mean, ultimately, you know, and I, I think this is a a fun interview for me because you are the example here, right? Like over time, if you follow the New York times, you trust what they say in general, but actually like when that story broke, it was like, Oh, Ben Smith broke this story, right? It was a Ben Smith headline, not a New York times headline. And, and you starting to see whether studio to star that's happened in news, you're starting to see more and more the bylines feel bigger than what they actually are. And that's because of platform development, et cetera. And it's hard for the organizations to start to adapt and develop. My kind of question with one of the fastest changing pieces, Substack, so many impacts of that platform development, uh, whether not really want to discuss their success as a business, but the impact on other media companies, because it did it. It gave a new option that was a lower barrier. And they, they were obviously, we've learned now, paying out contracts to, to, to help people people jump. As a new media organization, obviously, with a fresh start, you have many choices. How do you think about the balance of the creators, the writers, however you describe them on at Semaphore, and the brand as a whole? How do you think about that balance? Well, to, just to go back one beat, the, you know, I do think it's not so simple for big institutions like the Times to say, hey, maybe we have a 100-year-old brand that works one way, but we're going to become creator-centric or something. Like That of sounds insane. Yeah. And in fact, there's this great line that from Jill Abramson years ago that from some you know, a reporter like me who was like, well, I have a big name and I want blah, blah, blah. Um, where she said to them, you know what? The New York Times is always the prettiest girl at the dance. Sorry. And like, that's how they see their brand. They're probably right too. They're the New York Times. It they makes are. sense. Yeah. It does create this inevitable tension for journalists there who feel like, well, like actually I feel like people are kind of reading me. And I think that's probably sort of a real problem for these established institutions. The Times is the best position to navigate it. But you don't want, but, you know, and it's one thing to be a cog in the machine that is the New York Times, another thing to be a cog in a less functional machine. And so that's where a lot of journalists are at the moment. Do you think that has something to do at all with the financial upside? So, for example, like when you broke that Aussie story, I don't know, but that drove thousands of subscriptions to the Times, which created massive value uh, that, you know, there's many cases of this with like one key story driving massive amounts of subscription. The Athletic tried to like create an incentive program around this. Do you think at all that goes some of that issue is actually less about ego, but actually about like financially aligned incentives? You know, to some degree. I mean, I think journalism's a weird business. Like nobody's getting into it because they're primarily because they're that financially motivated, honestly. And then, and then also you do really need like that Aussie story. Like that was, that would have been pretty hard for me to do that on my sub stack. Yeah. Like they were making real legal threats. And I, the times is a great legal department, 
you know, the, the, the story had to be really buttoned down and well edited. And there were great editors there who were like really going over it with a fine tooth comb and making it sharper. So I think that's actually kind of a good example of a story where, you know, and Substack, I was among the many people Substack came to and said like, Hey, like have, take some money and come do it with us. And I think a lot of people did. And I think it makes sense for a lot of journalists. I think there's a certain slice of reporters. That's definitely how I came up, which is, you know, people who like to break news and, and occasionally get into these very high stakes fight with fights with powerful people or powerful institutions. Um, Ozzy, not, not necessarily being that, but maybe something from 2016, a, a different, a different yeah, fight. <laughs> yeah. 2016. Or I read about Fox you know, the other week, yeah, yeah. you know, got a nasty legal letter the other day from a subject like, you know, you, you, you need both on the front end. And then after you publish the story, there's some infrastructure that you really need. Yeah. And, the thing that we've tried to sort of, you know, when hiring, like, for instance, Liz Hoffman from the Wall Street Journal or Reid Albergati from The Post, Dave Waggle, you know, to say, like, hey, you're going to get the best of both worlds here. You know, we can give you the professional upside and other kinds of upside of having, you know, having it just clearly be your, your brand is as big as ours. And we sort of see ourselves attaching ourselves to your coattails rather than vice versa. But at the same time, you're going to have great editors, you're going to have a newsroom, you're going to have legal support, you're going to have technical and design support that I think people really value. I think it's different for different people. I think if you're Matt Iglesias or Andrew Sullivan, and you're primarily really kind of analyzing the news, and you know, and you're a naturally really fluent writer, it kind of makes sense just to be doing it on your own. Maybe the institution doesn't add as much value. But there are a lot of reporters, among other things like, I put myself in this category. You don't really see themselves as like writers per se and like want to have a good editor, but are pretty good at getting information, for instance. And those people are incredibly valuable, but they're valuable in the context of an institution that can really help them make the most of it. You know, but then they are providing a disproportionate share of the value to that institution that if you're at one of these big places, you're not capturing. So I think it's a little complicated. And what we're trying to do is really offer people the best of those both worlds, offer journalists the best of both worlds. And then I think that, readers really or viewers really do get oh wow this person is coming to me with new information that they have dug up and then they then i'm kind of curious what they think about it when you just describe yourself as someone who captures information and not necessarily identifies a writer i actually think media as a whole just loses that difference they, they classify journalists as the same and i think that you know one one th- what that shows me is the empathy of what you're building with semaphore is like you actually not only got to see the glass houses of covering media for so long but like you've you you get a build with your own empathy of knowing those nuances that coming from the outside people just don't understand yeah, it's that. probably it's probably true in every business right yeah like right. i'm sure i think all like electrical engineers or like you know pipe fitters do the same work, but actually they're like two totally different categories True. and I'm an idiot. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Thinking about the the personality, the biggest piece that we talked about at work week was thinking about graduation problem. I think the old model of, of you're like at a media company that doesn't have a time, you're not the prettiest girl in the room, you're not at the times, et cetera. You have to struggle with how do you keep your talent, particularly the ones that drive the vast majority of the value. But, you know, obviously leaning into giving them the brand and the professional upside is a huge piece of that. But is there anything else that you've kind of learned along the way as someone who has graduated out in some unique ways and like around others of like you just you're able to keep moving in different different capacities? How do you think about that for top contributors to these publications and what they should do to try to retain them through time? Yeah, you know, it's funny when I when I was at the Times and and Substack was talking to me, and I I did a column sort of about it, 
and really like as a thought experiment because I was never going to do it. The Times had sort of, you know, had an internal, they had a newsletter program that, you know, I think basically suffered from the thing that like the most classic, you know, innovators dilemma thing, which is that yeah. like, well, we're not going to, we'll put our second best people on it and have them put their second best content in it. And, you know, or we'll bring in some kind of quirky, interesting outsiders, but it's not the core. And so there was some conversation like, oh, maybe I should do a media newsletter and in which I put my second best stories. Like, well, who wants that? But I said to them, well, like, just like as a thought experiment, would you pay me more to do more work for this newsletter? Like, no. And then what about like, would you share the list with me? Like, I don't need it exclusively. And this was something we, we played with at BuzzFeed. Like, okay, you're going to do an email. We're going to pay you and you're going to do it on company time. But also you want the email list of your subscribers, which has immense value to you. And you're not going to kind of use the incentive to do this extra work. Yeah. But the thing is, like, you can have two copies of an email list, right? So that was something we did there in a, in a very different context where email was not our core and we were kind of letting people play around. But that's not something we're doing in 7.4 because email is really our core thing um, or a core, core thing. I mean, I think you see different people doing different things. Puck is experimenting with kind of giving people bonuses based on subscriber acquisition. Um, I think, you know, we've, you know, I mean, equity can certainly be part of that. Definitely. For sure. But I also think, again, like my own just experience and my own kind of career decision making has been a lot of journalists are really, really obsessed with the work. And you want to be in an environment where you can just feel like you're doing your best work, where you're getting it to the people you want to read it, where you're not, where you don't have internal bullshit getting in the way of, of you connect, if you breaking great stories for your audience and you, you have turf. I think that was something we saw a couple of star reporters leave the New York times for Politico recently. And I don't think it was really any of these kind of cut and dry incentives. It was more like if you're Jonathan Martin, you want to be like wandering around Capitol Hill and, but there's, so that's somebody else's beats. So you're not really allowed to. And, and, and there's a kind of, big institutional turf thing. That's a real management challenge, but that I think individuals who have options will leave over. Yeah. And I think this is true in a lot of these kind of broadly media spaces, the notion that you can basically create a set of financial incentives or some financial structure that's going to rejigger people's decision-making, you know, it can, it certainly helps and people aren't idiots, but I do think a lot of, and I think this probably this goes for like YouTubers and it goes for athletes um, as well as journalists, like are really obsessed with the work they're doing and want to be in a place where they can do really good work and do their best work. Particularly the best ones, right? That's what I've realized. Yeah. It's like the ones that actually have that, that have the highest financial upside that you would be willing to pay them. They're like, I'm here because like I want the legal support. I want the design because like I want to be my best and I can't, you know, necessarily do that on my own. I yeah, think that's also and they'll have a lot of, professional options right. to do books for, you know, to do. And they want to be at a place where if they want to do a book, their boss's point of view isn't basically, ugh, this is like a competition with us. Their boss's point of view is like amazing. We want this book to sell a zillion copies because you're a star who we're associated with and we, we want to bask in your reflected glory. And that is certainly our view. Well, and I, I think that's like, this uh, greed attitude of old management of, you know, where everything is ours, we pay you your salary, everything else is ours. I think you're starting to see people open up more about that, right? Being more available to new, you know, whether it's like little side hustles to larger book deals, mm -hmm. etc. When you were thinking about, you know, and I think this is so fun to hear how, how you at this earliest of stages, when you were thinking of like, what is an absolute must have for Semaphore, like as a business? 
that we have to build as a tent pole that we're going to build. Yeah, obviously, you just mentioned email is an interesting piece of this. But what else were you thinking like we have this is a must have? I mean, talent, us. right? Yeah. Like talent first, like have great journalists who yeah. can break news, which is not a lot of people. Like you go to any beat and the, you know, if you, Wall Street's a good example, politics, media, there are four or five reporters who break a very, very high percentage of the news. If you look at national politics, like Dave Weigel is, is, is among them. If you look at finance, you know, certainly Liz. And I think that's like, you know, and, and even on, and on sort of sub, like if you look at one of the huge stories we hear a lot about tech in China, Louise Matsakis is like somebody you got to follow. And so, yeah, I think centrally, centrally talent. But then also the, and the kind of tricky thing for me in that is it was also had to be people, and this isn't something you can tell by looking at their resumes or reading their clips or having a cup of coffee with them, but like, or maybe a little with the coffee, but people who are like interested in the idea of experimenting with format and trying to kind of reach people in a different way and taking a professional risk. And that's some people, not others, you know, and that's not really particularly a judgment on their work. It's sort of where are you in your life? The talent must have and then like actually identifying the format is something that I wanted to bring up because I've I've written about this before that really Axios's secret sauce for years, and I think this is like kind of caught up with them and, you know, whatever now, but originally their secret sauce was they were attracting really good talent and they convinced them to write in a certain format that was not traditional. And that format was actually more beneficial for consumer and long-term that made the business better, but you had to get through that ego, right? Like, um, and for, for myself, I've, you know, we've had have plenty of, of amazing writers that they just want to write that 6,000 word piece. Like they just like crave it. And it's not what everyone wants all the time. Mm-hmm. How did you think about format? I know the semiform is, is, is kind of the branding, which by the way, just as a branding perspective, you've done an amazing job there, but tell yeah, us. That was my colleague, my, 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 my pun happy colleague, Gina <laughs> Chua, but yes. I, I very much so, but tell <laughs> me a little bit about, you know, also comparing that a little bit, how Axios thought about format any inspiration there? How are you trying to kind of differentiate going forward? So I actually think Axios is like a great example. And, and so basically the thing they did was say, wow, like there are a lot of consumers have a lot of complaints about the news. And one of them is just like stuff is too long. I mean, it's just so yep. obviously the case. And they went at it that sort of consumer complaint, like totally frontally, right? Yep. Like, all right, we are going to make it shorter for you. And I think that's you know, and I like, love it. Like, that's yeah. amazing. And it worked. Yeah. And I think actually, you know, certainly, you know, we learned a lot from them. And I think everybody else in the industry has too. All of it. Yeah. Just like, yes, actually, people would like things shorter and would like summaries. I don't, it's, 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 that's not the only consumer complaint. People also do want insight. They, they want, a kind of, you know, they, they, um, they are overwhelmed and want everything brought together in one place. They do, there are these sort of questions about trust that, and so I think that's sort of more where we've focused our, you know, attempts to innovate. But I do think that kind of impulse of like actually listening to people when they complain and trying to address it is really, really similar. That's something I really admire about Axios. What I'm hearing from your talent like recruitment, though, is not only do you want someone that has the connections and resources to be able to break news, the relationship side, probably a lot of people who don't identify as writers like yourself, I would imagine, because that's where massive value creation can happen, as well as people who are interested in, in testing new formats, probably low ego, willing to like experiment and try there. 
I wouldn't say low ego. What's the line about journalists? They're all shy <laughs> egomaniacs. And, and, and a little bit pessimistic as well. But uh, what, what else, like if you're, if people are listening here and they're like, how do I build a talent collective that is amazing? This is what you're building your business around. Uh, besides the, the willingness to experiment and the ability to really have those relationships, is there any other character traits that you look for? The thing about reporting, there's no trick. You just sort of have to make a lot of phone calls. You can't kind of think your way out of it. And I think there's a sort of a, there's a sort of impulse sometimes in journalism to look for shortcuts to either through like kind of slick writing or, you know, assuming kind of thinking, you know, where the story really is when really like the way to get a story is to make a hundred phone calls and there's not like another trick. And so there is just sort of a pure work ethic thing around reporting that I don't think you can really get around. And then kind of a level of, you know, you could call it curiosity or aggression, but like just something about like, you really want to know what's going on and you're just going to kind of make a bunch of really like low percentage, take a bunch of really low percentage shots. And one of the best stories I ever worked on with a colleague at at Buzzfeed came, you know, he said, I think this is subsequently emerged in, in, because there was a big, there were some indictments around it. So some of the stuff emerged at trial, but like he sent hundreds and hundreds of LinkedIn messages to employees of a federal agency and, you know, all but one of them were totally useless and ignored, but one of them hit somebody who really had a story to tell. Yeah. And and that's, that's, it's sort of an insane thing to do. It feels a little like sales in terms of, I think, I think there's like, you know, cold calling and getting rejected a lot. The, one of the best reporters I know um, came up in the, in the church of Latter-day Saints and, you know, was a missionary knocking on doors for like a whole year, speaking a language he had learned in Provo kind of imperfectly. And I think like did not make a lot of converts that year, but it like definitely made him a good journalist because you get really used to rejection. Yeah. Well, also, I think one of my takeaways of this call is the fearlessness and aggression you have of willing to go toe to toe with legal, willing to like looking, knowing that if you're doing your job, that is actually part of the outcome and be willing to take that on, that's probably a level, if you're uh, someone listening to this wanting to really make an impact, I think that's a lesson learned here, that you can't be afraid of those those outcomes that make you have to kind of be aggressive and go toe-to-toe. A couple of questions on, on the broader media industry as a whole. There was a, a pretty big trap that happened in 2016 around video. Uh, you, you covered this uh, well uh, back then of the media industry. If you had to assume there was a trap happening at all now of media companies investing in something or chasing something what do you think there's something in 2022 that that you think we should all avoid i kind of just totally disagree with this narrative around the pivot to video uh tell me about it like a lot of media companies took money from facebook did work that was hired a bunch of people to do work that made no sense had no audience and they weren't proud of and then when facebook took the money that way we're like mad about it it didn't make any sense to me and I think BuzzFeed, partly because, you know, my colleagues, say Frank and Andrew and Ella on that team, like, you know, really were thinking very hard about video. You know, we took money from Facebook, did stuff that was interesting, started to build an audience. And when that money went away, we went over to Twitter and took what we'd learned and built a really successful product there. And for, I actually wound up feeling like, wow, Facebook subsidized a year of product development that we then did a great deal with Twitter and made a bunch of money and build a big audience on. And I don't really see why I was not mad at Facebook for that. Yeah. And I think it also created this idea in particularly kind of the journalism corner of the world that like 
like video, like got to stay away from video. Nobody's watching videos, which is insane. Like obviously most consumption of media is now short video on TikTok and other platforms that are trying to clone TikTok. And, you know, if you're in news, it's not the only place. And it's not, you know, if you're just trying to communicate pure information, it's not a particularly useful medium, but it's great. You know, it's an incredible medium for big chunks of news and, and we're certainly very committed to it. And, you know, trying to do build a sustainable business around video and do and, and build an audience. But but the notion that you sort of that, that the doing video was a horrible mistake to me is ridiculous. With anything, leadership and decision making is what what where the details matter there. I think like your pivot to Twitter, if you hadn't done that, potentially you might have not been as happy. Uh, and a lot of people didn't take that time and year to develop product and learnings off of it, uh, which is that's on them, not on Facebook, right? My piece with video, and I, you know, it, maybe you can share a little bit about this, but it's an incredibly difficult product to build solid unit economics around at scale. Uh, I think like on a direct, you've been doing direct sales at Semaphore. I found direct sales with video to be like pretty tough to scale and, and do comparatively. Programmatic, obviously on YouTube and others, it's, it's, it's not bad, but how do you think about monetization at all with with video? Is do you see it being part of a direct sales offering or more of a using the platforms to supplement that income and, and just build distribution? So we're now in the kind of operating at the edges of my confidence and understanding. I have to admit. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm not, just curious. I'm not, I'm not so, but I, I don't. I think that you need to build it in as part of a direct sales operation. I, I, I think it's very hard to. I think yeah. news is too expensive to produce. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and like I, I thought, like I love BuzzFeed's video operation and, and Tasty was such an incredible hit. And, amazing. And there, was, and there was a whole series of videos that just like amazing stuff they produced out of there, you know, I mean, some of which was, you know, Nigerians try American snacks and like talk about it and Americans try Nigerian snacks. And these sort of like, but the, part of what was so amazing about that was that was Zay who created was able to build sort of the video operation. You know, the, I think the budget per video was $300 and he knew you just had to stick to it because that's what the economics are on YouTube and you can build around that. But you know, once you start paying people to go out and report those economics fall apart immediately. And we thought about like, are there ways to do very, very lightweight and expensive stuff? And, and certainly like, like, and we're still, you know, we're doing it many, many multiples cheaper than, you know, what it costs to produce a minute of television but it's still more expensive than, you know, having one person film their hands, making a cinnamon roll, mostly. And there is less interest in news than in cinnamon rolls. So I think like, man, that, you know, that, that might out, have to be the that might have to be the tagline of, uh, of this yeah, podcast. Sadly. <laughs> sadly. Um, so and, and, the, and the person we, who's running video, Joe Posner, you know, created Explained Box, which is to me like right in that sweet spot of something that was fit YouTube's economics in that it was, you know, yeah. not that complicated and expensive to produce, but also really great journalism and engaging and interesting and really connected to both to the economics and really to the culture of the platform and what yeah. people actually want, not imagining what journalists want. So we've been doing some stuff I'm obsessed with in video called called Witness, where we have um, we're using this stable diffusion AI platform to create these with, with working with this great artist in Australia to create these really kind of haunting, interesting animations around stuff that you can't film people's memories for instance and it's really interesting and it feels very promising to me i think the the promise of video is gonna be i think it's like one of those things that short form video has had success because of the platform of going there but there's still such an opportunity and you all i think will will lead this of like actually having wonderful news-based short form video 
so. with, with strategy. So uh, I'll be I'll be watching. Um, last uh, couple of questions about you. You could tell if you've listened to this this far. Ben has used uh, name drop just about every great journalist covering various sectors. What I take from that is you consume probably more content than like 99% of people on earth, uh, at least. Who are some of the most interesting people to follow right now besides the folks at Semaphore? What companies are you you reading? Any authors, uh, writers? What, what kind of content are you consuming as Ben Smith? I have to say like Twitter has basically rewired my brain over the last you know 15 years. And so a lot of what I consume pops off Twitter one way or the other. And, and so I think I read like pretty widely, but but rarely go to home pages. I do think the FT right now is doing just a fantastic job of all the kind of like publications, you know, the sort of like legacy publications. Like I, when, when I was hiring, I got a really good sense of where, where are people eager to leave and where are people really happy and doing good work and proud of it and not eager to leave. And I was pretty struck by how hard it was to hire people from the FT, <laughs> even though in some ways it shouldn't be that hard. They're running a great business as well. I mean, it's just like they're they're, they're doing well. Also, you're learning there of uh, you not going to a lot of homepages, I think, is also the signal of your own consumption of, of why we're probably seeing more around social and email. Uh, yeah, well. for sure. I mean, I, I think obviously, you know, I think what Matt Levine and Joe Wiesenthal are doing at Bloomberg is great and are super yeah. interesting and I love both of their stuff. The, I mean, I, I also think there is, you're sort of seeing it's something people were saying a few years ago and they were saying it and really understand it, but that the reemergence of print is kind of a luxury product because I do find that the, the print publications I subscribe to are all like beautiful, small distribution, matte quarterlies. Like there's one called Racket for tennis, if you're into tennis, there's a magazine called Fair about food. There's a Stranger's Guide, which is this beautiful travel magazine. But they're like, it's this sort of reemergence of print as this like totally different kind of product yes. that's supposed to stick around your house for a while and you know lie on your coffee table. But I think people are doing it's it's a small world, but I think people are doing really kind of wonderful, inspired work in that space. I actually love that you brought it up. I, I, I tweeted about that and, and said, like, hey, should Workweek do, like, a very high-end magazine? I got a lot of hate and a lot of love. I actually think print has a possibility to capture your, like, most engaged fan bases and, and having something sit on a coffee table is a hell of a marketing tool as well. And then last thing around the industry of companies, you know so much about the media industry. Everybody listening to this podcast essentially is, is media operators, executives, uh, creators trying to get in the space. Who are a couple companies that not enough people are talking about that you think are, are interesting that we should we should go look at and, and, and follow? You know, I, Jubilee is really, really interesting, and I don't hear people talking about them much. They kind of took it, they're LA-based, kind of youth-focused, I think mostly YouTube. Yep. I'm sure there are other channels, company that does. It's sort of like really high wire cultural stuff that like BuzzFeed that we would not have done BuzzFeed. Like Israelis explain to Palestinians, you know, how they feel about the West bank and vice versa. And they do it in a way that like, I find really, I don't know, kind of inspiring, like the, that they are able to pull off these incredibly hot button, high wire things in this very kind of open-minded spirit and build a huge audience around it. I think they're really cool and interesting. And sort of often, and I never hear, and I never hear anybody over the age of like seventeen talk about them. But but I know my kids are into them, and then I find them really interesting. It's funny any conversation that doesn't center on and revolve around TikTok is sort of obviously missing a huge chunk of what's happening in media right now. And I think they're just both so massive, and then the political storm we're brewing around them is going to be so intense and interesting. I could talk to you of a different day about some predictions around that, but. And then there are platforms that I think people don't pay enough attention to. I think Discord, obviously, incredibly 
interesting and powerful as a platform. I think Ghost, the sort of email, you know, which is just in some sense kind of a white label Substack, is just a great piece of tech. Yeah, that is going to swallow that you just kind of quietly swallow a big chunk of the email industry because it's so technically strong. I love all those choices. Ghost, Ghost is like one of the few open source media tech platforms like basically that ever has existed. If you think about it, it's yeah. always been centralized. It's always so. Uh, I, I think it's a. I think that's a. It's a good call out. Well, uh, Ben, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I've been uh, watching Semaphore, rooting for you all. Excited to see how you continue to adapt and evolve with formats, with with your talent and recruitment, the beats that you all cover. And I can't wait to potentially have you on again in the future. Yes, it's really great to meet you first. Come come visit New York sometime. Uh, I absolutely will. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you want deep insight and hot takes on the world of media, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed this episode, share with a friend. I'll see you next time. 